Welcome to Reading in the Attic, a podcast featuring old and new fiction with a retro feel. My name is Camille LeGuire, and I'm literally reading these stories to you from my attic. So pull up a dusty chair and settle in. It's cold and stormy outside tonight, and a good night for a winter thriller. So this week I'm going to start reading Harsh Climate, which is a cold story about a pair of teenagers who take shelter from bad weather in an abandoned farmhouse, only to find it's the lair of a gang of kidnappers. I first wrote this as a screenplay. I wanted to try writing a low-budget picture, something with limited cast and locations, something easy to film, and with something in each role for an actor to play with. Thrillers are really suited for this kind of story, but I wanted it to be lighter and funnier, too more of a PG-rated die-hard in a farmhouse. Oddly enough, I never even tried to sell it to Hollywood. I decided I wanted to turn it into a story, a novella. It's not as long as a novel, but it will take several weeks to get through it. So, without further ado, I'm just going to get straight to the story. Harsh Climate by Camille LeGuire Episode 1 It had been an unusually warm early fall, but the temperature had dropped rapidly that day, leaving the landscape of Overton blanketed with a light snow. And now, after the snow, with a clear dark sky, the temperature dropped further, and the wind picked up. A crust of ice began to form on ponds and in ditches, and sidewalk puddles became a slick of black ice. The stars were like pinpricks of ice. Clyde Watkins turned the battered Oldsmobile into a driveway on Windsor Street. He was 17 and not dressed for the weather. No socks, worn sneakers, and just an extra sweatshirt for warmth. It was his own damn fault. He'd left the coat at a party somewhere, and he never did like socks. He hesitated before getting out, but it wasn't really the cold wind or the snow. He looked with trepidation at the house. Even inside the car, he thought he could hear yelling. Mr. Blur, Vicky's dad, was not happy. He was a state trooper, and he scared the hell out of Clyde. But there was no point in delaying. Vicky wanted a rescue, and he was there to provide it. Clyde threw himself out of the car and ran to the house. Tiny ice crystals worked their way into his shoes, making his ankles ache. He ducked his head and jumped up on the porch and knocked. Inside, he could hear Vicky shouting, That's what's wrong with you, she said. You don't care. Oh, sure, roared the voice of her father, so loud he must have been standing near the door. Miss Teen Queen I Don't Care Girl is telling me I don't care. I care. I care about everything, screamed Vicky. You don't even know how to care anymore. You're just a cynical old fart. Clyde sighed. It was not going to get any better, and he was cold. He knocked again, louder this time. The door jerked open, and Mr. Blur glared down at him. Oh, Christ, it's Poughkeepsie, he said, as if Clyde were just a package left on the step, a package Mr. Blur was not much interested in receiving. Actually, I'm from, began Clyde, but he was interrupted by Vicky, who stood on the stairs behind her father. That's Denver, she said firmly, and tell him I'll be right there. I'm from Toledo, continued Clyde, and my name is... 
Mr. Blur shut the door in his face as if Clyde wasn't even there. Clyde stood on the porch and considered whether this was worth it. He was about to strike out on the open road with the most interesting girl in school. Worth it. But there was no point in just standing there on the cold porch. Vicky needed a ride. He tried the knob and found the door was not locked. He pushed it open and stepped into the warmth of the house. Mr. Blur was glaring up the stairs after his daughter. He didn't turn around to look at Clyde, but he knew he was there. She's not going anywhere, Poughkeepsie, so you can just forget it, he said. My name is, began Clyde one more time, but then Mr. Blur turned to glare at him. Man, that guy had a tough glare. Clyde backed away a step. Are you her boyfriend now? No, said Clyde. They'd never dated. They were just friends, more or less, so he assumed that was true. Mr. Blur turned and shouted up the stairs. So is this your fag ballet partner? Don't be a homophobe, shouted Vicky from somewhere upstairs. No, I'm not, said Clyde. He supposed he shouldn't be a homophobe either, but he didn't want that misunderstood. So what are you doing here, growled Mr. Blur. But he didn't wait for an answer. He slapped the air dismissively with the force that could have knocked over a horse and went into the next room. Clyde stood alone in the entryway and looked after Blur. I guess I don't have any purpose here whatsoever, he said. He stepped up to the bottom of the stairs and called up. Vicky? I'll be right there, Denver, she called from somewhere out of sight. No, she won't, roared her father from the next room. I'll wait in the car, said Clyde. It'll be a long wait, called Mr. Blur. Clyde went back to the car, figuring that Mr. Blur was probably wrong. It was so cold in the car already. One of the windows didn't quite close, and the wind seemed to sneak in, like one of those evil mists in a horror movie. He considered starting the car to let the heater run, but he wasn't sure about the gas. If they were going all the way to Colorado, they were going to need gas. At least, he thought they were going to Colorado. Vicky had been calling him Denver ever since he agreed to drive. But she never actually said where she wanted to go. She was kind of obnoxious, really. But Clyde had this philosophy about people. If you let them get to you, you miss out on a lot of life. If you get offended all the time, you might not notice something really cool right there on the other side of the insult. Besides, life's too short to deal with other people's shit. So he sat and shivered and considered whether he should start calling himself Denver the Ride Guy. Everybody else was calling him Denver now at school. Vicky came running from the back of the house. She must have snuck out. She was hauling a large suitcase with her. She just made it to the car when her father threw open a window. Is that a suitcase? Where the heck are you going? Vicky threw the suitcase in the back seat. Go, she yelled, and she jumped into the passenger seat. Clyde started the car. Of course, it took a minute for it to turn over. Mr. Blur disappeared from the window, and he knew it was only a minute before he'd come running out the door. But then the engine roared roughly to life, and Clyde hit the reverse so fast his tires squealed. Vicky buckled her seatbelt. She may have been a rebel, but she was a cop's daughter. She settled back. This doesn't make you my boyfriend. I know, said Clyde. I'm doing this for the gas money. He paused. You have got the gas money, right? Of course, she said, and she patted her purse. Then westward ho. 
She paused, and he could tell she was looking at him. Why did he have to say something stupid like that? Thanks, Denver, she said at last. My name is Clyde, he said, and I'm from Toledo. Denver's a better name, she said. He glanced away from the slippery road to look at her. She was smiling a thin smile, Mona Lisa style. God, she was beautiful. Blonde hair, green eyes, lithe and energetic. She was a dancer, and sometimes her body just seemed like a taut spring, even in her lumpy winter coat. He took a breath and turned back to the road before he ran them into a ditch. Okay, Denver was better. He could be Denver. The nicest part of Overton Hills was sometimes called the forest, because all the streets were named after trees. The town wasn't big enough to have a gated community, but there was plenty of gates and fences among the curving streets of the forest. The security lights picked out the line of pure white snow edging the iron fencing, as well as the branches of trees and shrubs. It was like a high-security Christmas. The biggest of the houses on Maple Street was the Anderson home. The gates were open, revealing a long, well-maintained driveway. A pearl-gray Lincoln flowed down the street and up between the gates. It came to a stop before the house. A small boy, about seven years old, immediately leapt out of the car, his coat flapping open. He had a birthday party hat on his head, slightly askew. He turned around and pulled a large skateboard from the seat beside him. He bounced with excitement and held the skateboard high. That was the best party, he called, as his father and stepmother got out of the car. His father, Peter, was a man in his forties. He looked pale and worn in the cold light reflecting from the snow all around. He smiled at his son. You can thank Judy for that, Kevin, he said. Kevin paused, and for a moment his excitement cooled. Judy, the stepmother, was younger than his father, attractive and efficiently well-kept, and perhaps not as warm as a young child would like. But, as Peter's former personal assistant, she did know how to put on a party. She and Kevin faced each other with polite formality. Thank you, Judy, said Kevin. You're welcome, Kevin, she said with a smile. Judy finished. Kevin hoisted the skateboard in the air and spun around. It seemed large enough to overwhelm the small boy, but he swung it down to the ground without dropping it or falling over. I'm going to ride this everywhere, he declared, and he started skating down the driveway. Don't go out the gate, called his father. I won't, replied Kevin. Judy took Peter's hand, and he turned fondly to her. I think he's finally warming up to you, a little. There's no hurry, she replied. Thank you, Judy. From me, too, said Peter. How did you manage to get Jim Waxton to come? I knew his kids were into competitive skateboarding, she said with a shrug, so it wasn't hard. Her explanation was interrupted by a screech of tires. A large van pulled up across the end of the driveway, right in front of Kevin. Kevin stopped in time, but the skateboard continued down and rolled into the wheel of the van as a huge man jumped out the side door. His face was covered with a ski mask, and his form was disguised by a bulky coat. Kevin! cried Peter, and he leapt forward to save his son, but he was too far and the big man was too fast. The man with the ski mask snatched up Kevin and threw him in the back of the van. He jumped in himself and the van screeched away again, running over the skateboard and crushing it with a thumping crack. Peter staggered as he reached the end of the driveway. The cold, dry air burned at his lungs. 
He clutched his throat and tried to keep going. Judy stood where she was, stunned. But as she saw Peter fall to the pavement, she scrambled forward. My God, Peter! Call 911, gasped Peter. Judy fell to her knees beside him and pulled out the phone, dialing with one hand as she loosened his jacket. Send an ambulance to 314 Maple Street. My husband has collapsed. Hurry! The police, muttered Peter. Kevin! And my stepson has been kidnapped, added Judy. She couldn't handle more than one worry at a time. Yes, send the police. I don't know. I have to give CPR now. Hurry! Peter seemed barely conscious. She rolled him to a better position and began to administer CPR. Don't you die, Peter, she said. Don't you die on me now. The kidnap van slowed once it was away from the house. It zipped through the neighborhood quietly and surely, as if the driver knew where he was going. In the back seat, the big man who had grabbed Kevin pulled a hood over the boy's head and then fastened the kid's hands together with duct tape. It's good, he said flatly to the driver, to signal that the kid could not see them. They both pulled off their masks, so as not to arouse suspicion of anyone who happened to glimpse inside the van. The big man was a serious sort, but his face and body language held no expression. He was known to his colleagues as Creepy Jeff, or CJ, and you didn't have to spend much time with him to see why they called him that. The driver, Sly, was younger and happier, and he grinned as widely as CJ did not. Sly pulled the van into a sheltered drive that turned out to be the entrance of an alley. He pulled up behind an SUV and then jumped out to check to see if all was clear. He slapped the van twice to signal it was, but CJ was already out, with Kevin over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. Sly opened the back door of the SUV and CJ threw the boy in. He paused to go through the little boy's coat pockets while Sly called someone on his cell phone. Hey boss, it's good, said Sly. We're on our way. CJ tossed a small object to Sly, Kevin's cell phone. Sweet, said Sly, as he looked at the kid's phone. You should see this kid's phone, boss. It ain't even released on the market yet. And it's got... No, I'm not using it. I did not turn it on. I know they can track it. I'm just admiring it. Sure. He hung up and saw CJ watching him with a blank stare. Man, that dude was scary. I was just admiring it, said Sly. Jesus. Clyde. No, Denver. It actually was a better name after all. Denver drove his old Oldsmobile along River Road as Vicky grumbled. You just know my dad did drugs when he was young, she said. You've been doing drugs, said Denver. No, said Vicky, with so much disdain that Denver was sorry he'd asked. But you just know he did. He probably still does, the hypocrite. Every time they have a big drug bust, you can bet he's down there in the evidence room puffing away. He's such a jerk. Denver pulled to a stop at a stop sign and considered which direction to go. One way went to the highway, but the other... He doesn't know what I can do, continued Vicky. He doesn't appreciate anybody, but... Your dad's a state trooper, said Denver. What have I been saying? Maybe we should stay away from the freeway until we get out of state. Vicky paused and looked at him with surprise. Good thinking, she said. He flipped the turn signal and she frowned at him. That's the wrong way. We need gas. There are gas stations that way, too. 
But I know where the one by the freeway is, he said. She reached over and shifted the car into park. Hey, what are you doing? Come on, said Vicky. She grabbed him by the lapels and pulled him toward her. Vicky was the most unpredictable girl in the universe, and for one moment, Denver almost believed she was pulling him closer. He started to put an arm around her, but she shoved it aside and kept pulling. I know where the gas stations are, she said, grinning. Oh, said Denver. Fine, let her drive. They'd have to take turns anyway. He tried to scoot over as she climbed and elbowed. There wasn't much room, and her huge winter boots got caught. She fell forward, parts of her pressed against him in the most interesting ways. He wasn't sure how much he was supposed to push back, so he tried to scoot aside and push on her elbows. But all he got was poked and kicked, and the hood of her jacket hooked on his head. Oof, he said, as she suddenly leaned hard against his face, and stepped on his foot with one large boot. She folded herself in two and kicked the other boot up impossibly high and swung it over the steering wheel, and she was finally able to settle into place. The whole wrestling match left Denver a little breathless with admiration. Vicky looked at the gauges and adjusted the seat and mirrors. It's cold tonight, she declared brightly. The heater will kick in in another hour or so, he said. She grinned at him. That got your motor running, didn't it? I'm ready to go, admitted Denver. Vicky shifted the olds into gear and looked at the road ahead. Two roads diverged into a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. An ambulance came unexpectedly around the curve of the road, its sirens muted by the snow and trees until it got close. Vicky slammed on the brake. Behind the ambulance, a pearl-gray Lincoln raced to keep up. And that made all the difference, said Denver as he turned his head to watch them pass. Something like that, said Vicky, and after a second look to see that the road was now clear, she headed down the road less traveled. Peter lay unconscious on a hospital bed, enveloped in tubes and wires and monitors. He looked frail and deflated. Judy stared through the window at him, gripping the sill with a white-knuckle grip. She could not let him die. She would not let him die. She became aware of someone speaking to her. A nurse stood next to her, tilting her head with sympathy and proffering a large plastic bag. These are his clothes and things, said the nurse. We can't be responsible for them, so you'll have to take them. Is he stable? asked Judy sharply. Yes, said the nurse with simpering sweetness, although we keep him that way, snapped Judy with so much ice the nurse stepped back. You have the best cardiac unit in the state looking after him, she said, raising her chin. Judy took the plastic bag and walked away sharply. Peter's family were at the other end of the hall, talking with an FBI agent. She sped up, hoping to slip past them, but Aunt Sally, Peter's older sister, spotted her and stopped her with a disapproving frown. "'You need to go home, Judy,' she said. "'I'm staying with Peter. Somebody has to be there other than the police to answer the ransom call.' "'Then you do it,' said Judy.' The FBI agent cleared his throat and innocently interjected. Ma'am, they'll expect a parent to answer the phone. I'm not his mother, said Judy. Didn't she tell you I'm just the new wife and not a member of the clan? She glared at Sally, who pointedly ignored her. Sally turned to the agent. She's right, she said with a sigh. I should do it. 
I'll be needed to arrange for the ransom anyway. Sally gave her a direct look, almost a smirk. Judy stiffened. Of course Sally had to rub it in that Judy didn't have access to the family funds yet. She'd had more access to everything when she was Peter's assistant. Now, as wife, she had some other rights, but the family held the purse strings. Are you all right, Judy? said Sally after a moment. My husband is dying. He's stable. This kidnapping will kill him, she snapped. But then she took a breath and rocked back, closing her eyes. Sally, just go. Take care of Kevin and bring him back to Peter. Sally nodded graciously to Judy and then to the FBI agent, and she left. Judy turned to the agent. And you stay away from Peter, she ordered. I'll have to talk to him. You can't tell him that Kevin is still in danger, she said. If you must talk to him, you have to lie to him. Well, ma'am, I have to. Do not kill my husband. No, ma'am, said the agent, properly cowed. It was still before dawn, but the sky was beginning to brighten. The ancient Oldsmobile was parked on the side of a country road. Somewhere. It was next to a very deep ditch and some woods and a field, and nothing else in sight, especially in the dark. The windshield was covered with frost, but the light was enough to reveal Denver and Vicky shivering silently. Neither looked at the other. Denver had his knees drawn up and was covered by a moldy red checkered blanket from the back seat. She had a decent coat, and he was no longer in the mood to share. I'm sorry, said Vicky her voice loud and sharp in the silence that had enveloped them for what must have been hours. I didn't say anything, said Denver. She paused and then narrowed her eyes at him. That's right, you didn't, she said. You didn't say, for instance, that the gas gauge was broken. I did say we needed gas. She glared at him. It was such a hot glare that it should have set the blanket ablaze. But since it didn't warm up the car any, he ignored it. She'd sworn she knew where the gas stations were, and he was pretty sure she had gotten them lost instead. And yet she blamed him. He pulled the blanket tighter and didn't look at her. They shivered in silence for what seemed like another hour, but was probably less. The sky was getting brighter, which this time of year meant it was full morning. It's getting light, said Denver. A car will come along any time now. Man, it's cold, she said after a minute. We could conserve heat by putting two bodies together, he suggested. Not going to happen. Vicky pushed the door open and got out. Or we could just freeze separately, he said with a sigh. He pushed aside the blanket and got out too. Vicky was standing on the road, doing long, nimble stretches. Denver went to the trunk to get his gas can. By the time he turned around, she was climbing down into the ditch by the road. Where are you going? There's a house over there, she said, and she pointed. Far across the field, the peak of a roof stuck up from some trees. It seemed a long way away, and the field was rough with stubble and patches of snow and ice. Denver didn't see any sign of lights through the trees. They're all summer homes around here, he said. It could be empty. Why don't we stick to the road? Cabins are required by law to be unlocked and stocked with survival gear. What law? The law of the North. That's not a law. Yes, it is. She leapt across the shallow ice and water at the bottom of the ditch with the grace of a gazelle, or at least that of a gazelle wearing army boots. 
It's a courtesy, called Denver as she scrambled up the other side. And nobody has courtesy these days. She turned to face him. Then what do you want to do? He paused and then held up a thumb to indicate hitchhiking. She blew him a raspberry. Fine, he said. We'll go to the house, but along the road to the corner and then up the driveway so we can flag down a car if we get the chance. That way we cover both bases. This way is shorter, she said. She turned and started across the field. Clyde sighed and started to follow, but he paused at the edge of the ditch. His sneakers were worn, and he could already feel bits of cold coming through the cracks. I'll go this way, he said. Yeah, you stay with the car and keep your little tootsies warm, she called back. He flipped her the bird. She flipped it right back at him. Then she went her way, and he went his. And he realized as he walked along the roadside that he'd probably end up paying for all the gas, too. Stubborn people make life interesting, but maybe this was a little too interesting. And that's the first episode. I decided not to leave you with a full-out cliffhanger this week, but I don't promise not to leave you on tenderhooks in the future. After all, once Vicky gets to that farmhouse, things will start happening, and there aren't many stopping places. But we'll see about that next week. That's it for this week. The story is Harsh Climate by Camille Laguire. It's available in ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. Theme and story music by the Royalty Free Music Company. Until next time, see you in the funny papers.